We may not be able to, you know, fix a broken heart necessarily, but we can give the owners, the clients ideas about what to expect, what to look for, what to do if you notice these things. It gives some of the power back to them. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Something so wonderful about the veterinary profession is you can take so many different paths. You could be a professor, work in public health, the private sector, in the clinical setting, and so on. And some veterinarians choose to specialize. That was the case for our guest today, Dr. Katie Meyer. She is a board-certified veterinary cardiologist who works at CVCA Cardiac Care for Pets in Austin. But she didn't always know she wanted to be a veterinary cardiologist. In fact, the specialty was unfamiliar to her up until the summer before her first year at the University of California at Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. She had landed a job with a veterinary cardiologist. I had no idea what veterinary cardiology really was. I just was looking for something to do to kind of pass the time until school started. So this cardiologist, he was a cardiologist in training. He was doing his residency and he was doing a research project where he needed to do cardiac ultrasounds or echocardiograms um, on normal animals, uh, but he could only use the equipment at night. So we would go in and like, basically my job was to hold, you know, gently lay the animal down on the echo table and hold them while he did the echoes. Within about a week of working for him and talking to him and seeing what he did and getting to know kind of what a cardiologist did, it seemed like the perfect fit for me because it is a diagnostic specialty. So you do a lot of diagnostics and workups of cases. Um, but it also entails some surgery and it also entails diagnostic imaging, which not every specialty does. Um, it was just multifaceted and, and challenging and, and seemed very cool to me. So basically I went to vet school thinking I was going to be James Harriet, <laughs> female version. Yeah. And um, within a, before even starting, I, my, I took like a 90 degree turn and decided that I wanted to be a cardiologist. Wow. So what was it like when you first did, when you did your first surgery? Nerve wracking for sure. Um, in vet school, you know, we are taught how to do, and we have some surgical skills. We do like spays and neuters and things like that. Um, but cardiac surgery as cardiologists perform, it is typically minimally invasive um, so we use catheters to access vessels, kind of like they do in people okay. with stents and things. Yeah. Um, so you're basically doing surgery um, on an artery, which is can be very nerve wracking. Yeah. Um, but once you are, once you complete the surgery and have, have helped a patient, it's exhilarating. So, so tell me about that first case that you did. The first cardiac intervention or surgery that I was involved with was probably when I was a student when a resident that I knew in cardiology was trying to um, 
figure out a technique for gene therapy to help animals and ostensibly maybe later people with heart muscle disease. Hmm. So finding a way to get uh, a, a corrective gene into the heart muscle cells so that the heart muscle could heal. Yeah. Um, so I, I was involved in that. You know, I, I was helping do the anesthesia. I didn't actually like in, in do any injections or anything like that. Um, so that was probably my first exposure. And then my first actual like hands-on was when I was an intern at Texas A&M. And uh, I was allowed to scrub in as an intern, assisting the, the actual cardiologist um, in closing a, a defect called a patent ductus arteriosus, where at the time, small devices would be put into a, a, a vessel or a hole between a communication between um, the aorta and the pulmonary artery that should close when they're born mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes in dogs it doesn't close and so they can either have open chest surgery where that's t- tied off or um, cardiologists can go in with catheters and place devices um, so that was the the first kind of cardiac intervention surgery that I was involved with mm-hmm. I, ha- I I mean the cardiologist did everything it was uh, with supervision obviously yeah but but it was pretty awesome dr meyer has come a long way since then after graduating from uc davis she attended a year-long rotating postgraduate internship at texas a&m university college of veterinary medicine following the internship she completed her residency in veterinary cardiology at the university of pennsylvania matthew j ryan veterinary hospital So after my residency, I decided that I wanted to chase the sun and I moved to Austin. I have family in Texas, so it made sense. And I wanted to serve the greatest number of pets that I possibly could and their owners. So I started a cardiology practice, collaborating with other specialists and general practitioners in the area. And I traveled. So I had a portable ultrasound machine and I traveled around the the greater Austin area with that ultrasound machine and scheduled appointments to see pets in their primary care veterinary offices. Uh, and I grew that practice. It was very, very busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as things happen, life happens. I had a family and yeah. started to need to spend more time tending to that part of my life. So I made the decision a few years back to uh, stop doing the traveling and mobile practice. And I um, then was working out of a specialty hospital, but I still had my own practice. I just leased space. Um, There is a large group, the largest group of veterinary cardiologists in the world called CVCA, Cardiac Care for Pets. They reached out to me. They were interested in expanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and after you know a couple years of getting to know them and them getting to know me and negotiating, we uh, mer- I merged with them in May of 2018. Okay, so that's pretty recent. Yeah. Okay, so I'm curious. You moved to a new city. You hadn't lived in Austin before. Correct. 
but you had family in, in Dallas. In Dallas. Yeah. So how did you choose to start your own clinic? Like you could have joined a specialty practice. How did you make that decision? I initially was employed by a specialty practice. That practice developed some financial difficulties. And rather than move away when that practice dissolved, I elected, because I had ties to Austin by that point, to Mm -hmm. stay and start my own practice. So what were some of the challenges of starting your own practice? Scheduling and knowing how much time to allot per appointment. Um, Initially, I did everything myself. I was the receptionist. I was the bookkeeper. I was the driver. I was the cardiologist. Mm -hmm. Um, Record keeping, that's a hugely important part of medical practice. Um, It took some trial and error to figure out how to do that in an effective manner. Uh, I will say the advent of cloud-based software has been a blessing. Yeah, yeah. For sure. So how did it feel merging with CBCA? By the time it happened, I was so confident in their model, which was very similar to what I was already doing, but just on a larger scale. They had done it so many times and had built a very successful business on the Eastern Seaboard, I had no qualms. Um, And since then, it's been, it was a pretty smooth transition. Um, I did have to change locations. I moved hospitals and that, just the physical uh, endeavor of moving office furniture and things like that can be a little bit challenging, but um, from a, like, keeping the practice going and building and you know with merging with CVCA another cardiologist moved here uh, to join me which was incredibly helpful because I I was booked out three to four months in advance it was really difficult because I couldn't help every animal that needed my help Um, so bringing another cardiologist and we've since added a third doctor to our practice it's been really wonderful because we can serve the pets of the greater central texas area effectively so does that mean that there weren't that many veterinary cardiologists in the area that's right so veterinary cardiology as a specialty only has about approximately 300 boarded board certified cardiologists in the world wow. in the world mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty small specialty <laughs> yeah how many do you know in texas in the u.s most of them are in the united states there's okay. like maybe 20 overseas okay uh in texas i'm trying to do the math two i think there are two in dallas there are three in austin and there are three three at Texas A&M and there are three in Houston so not many yeah um and definitely the there is need for more yeah I mean Um, if you think about how many human cardiologists right and I mean it's hard to compare how many humans versus pets there are in the world (laughs) sure but you also have to think about there's only I've lost count. When I was in vet school, there were only 27 accredited veterinary schools 
in North America. And not every single one of those has a cardiology training program for postgraduate training. So there really are only somewhere between 8 to 15 newly minted veterinary cardiologists per year. So it's not... It's not like it's a rapidly growing specialty either. Yeah. Um, it's a small group. Yeah. Whereas pretty much every medical school in the country is going to have a cardiology fellowship. So people, yeah. human cardiologists are much more common. So why do you think it is that there aren't that many veterinary cardiologists? I think it may have something to do with the, the bottleneck or the, the gatekeeping is at training programs. I think far more people apply to specialty residencies than get them. Mm. Um, and it's it's a huge endeavor to train a resident. Um, it, it's a lot of time and effort. And of course, the rewards are huge as well. Yeah. But unless there's a training program in place, um, and, and really it's driven by the caseload Mm -hmm. so if you have a really busy hospital you could probably train multiple residents at residents at a time but if you have a slower less populous hospital with a lower caseload you really only can train one resident at a time and that's a three-year residency so if you're only churning out one resident every three years it's just not it's hard to it's hard to generate a lot more cardiologists yeah so tell me about a typical day for you I get to work, my first appointment, my technician will have already gotten a brief history of why the pet is coming to see me. I'll go in, uh, ask my, you know, any follow-up questions that I may have. I'll do my cardiac physical exam, which primarily is listening to their hearts for any abnormal sounds, heart rhythms, heart murmurs, and then let the owner know what I recommend diagnostically. Usually that entails an ultrasound of the heart or an echocardiogram. So then we will transition into the ultrasound room or the echo room and my technicians will lay the pet down on a padded table. The owner's present for everything and that is something that's fairly unique to uh, the company that I work for. Mm -hmm. Um, Owners are kept with the pet throughout all the diagnostics, which um, helps the pet remain calmer and makes our diagnostic uh, results maybe a little more in line with how the pet probably is at home because they're more relaxed with their owner there. Um, We'll do the echocardiogram, so it's an ultrasound of the heart. There are standard views that we get on every animal we make the diagnosis and then we go over the diagnosis and treatment plan with the owner, um, answer any questions they may have. We provide a written report for the owners and for their primary care vet or the referring veterinarians. And then we do it again, somewhere between six to 10 more times that day. Wow, okay. So, And how long does it take to do each appointment? It's about an hour, yeah. Sometimes, you know, really complicated or um, complex cases will take a little bit longer and sometimes very straightforward things won't take quite an hour but all told it averages about an hour per patient. So I imagine if a pet owner comes in and their dog or cat is experiencing a heart condition they're probably 
a little more worried than usual than they would be at a regular veterinary visit. Um, can you tell me about the feelings that pet owners usually have and how you help them with navigate those feelings? That's definitely true. And I mean, trying to be as compassionate as possible, but, but while still providing information for them. And, and I think it sort of depends. Sometimes they come in and they're really worried and we find a, a benign murmur. And so mm-hmm. there's no heart disease. And obviously navigating those feelings is a little bit easier than yeah. distraught owners that are being faced with end of life diagnoses. Um, but our staff is very compassionate. They are there because they love animals. Mm-hmm. And they are also very good with our clients a lot of veterinary, you know, the joke is like you people go into veterinary medicine because they love animals and really every animal is attached to a person. Yeah. So you kind of, you have to be a people person too. Um, and that is an important skill set that we try to encourage. Um, but, you know, even if, even if the owners are distraught, you know, we try and help provide comfort through a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, we, may, we may not be able to, you know, fix a broken heart necessarily, but we can give the owners, the clients ideas about what to expect, what to look for, what to do if you notice these things. It gives some of the power back to them. So they feel a little bit in control. Yeah. So tell me about the most common heart conditions that you treat. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most common in cats. Okay. Dilated cardiomyopathy is the most common in dogs. Okay, got it. So tell me a story about a patient who came into the clinic and they had a small likelihood of surviving, but they beat the odds. One condition that we see in dogs, it's rare, but, well, the condition that leads to it is not rare. They're, the most common heart disease period in dogs is something called degenerative valve disease, where uh, one of the heart valves, most commonly the mitral valve, is becomes abnormally thick and it doesn't seal properly. So it leaks, which then leads to heart enlargement and eventually can lead to heart failure. In rare cases, the leak can cause damage to the lining of the inside of one of the chambers of the heart called the left atrium and that can actually rupture so the heart basically ruptures open and they can usually we think when this happens they die suddenly because they bleed to death in rare cases and i've had probably five to seven patients in my career where it's obvious that's what happened they collapsed, they presented to the emergency room, we did an echocardiogram, and you can see the fluid in the sac surrounding the heart called the pericardium, but you can also see a blood clot. Mm. And it's basically that blood clot is keeping the dog alive. In, in a few patients, I have seen them completely recover. And I have a little chihuahua that I saw recently that I saw her the first time probably three or four years ago. And she has degenerative valve disease. She had an episode um, that was most likely one of these ruptures of the left atrium. 
Um, and she basically has healed in a way that her heart has gone back to its normal size. She still has a leak in her mitral valve, but she's basically like able to come off multiple of her medications and she's definitely defied the odds for sure. Wow. It's awesome. Every time I see her on my schedule, it makes me smile. Yeah, yeah. Um, any other stories come to mind? Any other like specific pets? One of the coolest things that a cardiologist gets to do if they're lucky is retrieve heartworms from a, a heart. So backstory is heartworm is a little bit of a misnomer. Mm-hmm. The reason they are called heartworms is that when they were first discovered, it was discovered on autopsy of, a, of an animal that wasn't alive. So the worms typically actually live in the pulmonary artery, which is one of the great vessels that leads the right heart. But if they're not alive, the worms will, there's no blood pushing them out. The, the worms will fall back into the heart. So they were seen in the heart, and that's why they're called heartworms. They're a parasite that's transmitted by mosquitoes. And it's pretty common in Texas, uh, especially if, um, you know, like shelter pets, pets that are not on routine monthly preventative but in some cases, the heartworm, there are so many heartworms that they cause enough problems for the heart that they'll, in an alive dog, fall backwards into the heart. And when that happens, they can have something called cable syndrome, which is life-threatening. Uh, the, the, the worms cause all kinds of problems. And when, they're, when they have cable syndrome, you can't use medicine to, to get rid of the worms. You have to go in and physically remove them so we had a patient that was a a rescue dog and the rescue group is wonderful and they go all out for their for their rescue dogs and they brought us a brought us this dog and she had worms in her heart and we had long discussions with them about you know what had to be done and they elected to move forward and we were able to remove one or two worms and then um, she ultimately, the rest of the worms were in the pulmonary artery so she ended up having the medical treatment for heartworms too but the surgery to remove the worm was pretty, if you're squeamish it wouldn't be good but if you're a cardiologist it was pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So like instant gratification? Completely, yeah. Okay, kind of yeah. like a dental hygienist who like gets a stain off? Or... Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. exactly. Except the stain's not life-threatening and a right. heartworm is, but yes, not to. Yeah. 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 Is there anything you wish you know now that you had known when you had first started your career? I'm sure there's a thousand things. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of one. I guess I, I wish that I had known then that you're not always going to have an answer in medicine because I I think we're taught how to be problem solvers and mm-hmm. that's what our job is but sometimes you don't know why things didn't go the way you had planned or expected and that that's just part of the complexity of a, of a living organism. Mm-hmm. It always feels good to have answers to yes. the pet owners. Like, well, what is it? And yeah. Those are difficult conversations yeah. when you know there's, you can describe abnormalities and you know that the pet is sick, but you don't know why. 
and you don't you if you run out of runway like you don't you've done all the diagnostics and you still don't have an answer mm-hmm. it's frustrating for everybody yeah. involved and and you want to be able to help the the patient but I think earlier on in my career I took those kinds of cases personally and thinking that there was something wrong with me or my abilities and I realize now that not that I'm perfect by any stretch of the imagination but that uh everybody has those kinds of cases yeah nobody has all the answers yeah all the time so what advice do you have for general practitioners who diagnose a patient with a heart condition I mean we are certainly happy to see those patients to get to achieve a definitive diagnosis and um, CVCA who I work with our four has feels very strongly about the co-management of cases between the primary care vet and the cardiologist so um, they actually there's a, a, a study that ha, that they did looking at prognosis and survival in heart failure patients co-managed with a cardiologist and a primary care vet versus uh, not. And um, there was a 75% increase in in time of survival mm. for patients co-managed. Because the more, the more hands on the patient more frequently, the more likely something is going to be picked up and, and be able to be treated sooner. Um, so... I mean, I guess the advice I would say is do the do part of the workup. Um, you know, take chest X-rays if you hear something abnormal. We're happy to look at those and give our opinions. Um, we do have treatments that can are started in some heart disease, even in asymptomatic patients. But we need the echo to know whether that medication is indicated. So. Referral for advanced diagnostics is never wrong. Mm-hmm. And then once we get the diagnosis, our goal is to send the patients back to the referring vets to help us manage them. Okay. How many referring veterinarians do you work with? Hundreds. It's hard to say. I mean, the greater Austin, San Antonio corridor all the way up to Waco. We see patients from Dallas. We see patients from El Paso and uh, the like Corpus Christi, the, the coast. So we see them from all over. So pet owners travel miles. They do. Uh, well, there's only 300 cardiologists in the world. Yeah. I know now that pet owners expect a higher standard of care. So I don't know, back maybe at one point, if their pet had a heart condition, maybe... They would just say, you know, that's that's it. But now people are traveling far so they can get that sort of care. Yeah, it's true. The evolution of veterinary specialty medicine has is relatively recent. I mean, there have been veterinary specialists for a long time, but a lot of veterinary specialty medicine up until probably 20 to 30 years ago was exclusively at veterinary teaching hospitals and veterinary mm-hmm. schools. Um, which are not always in the most convenient metropolitan areas. So the primary care veterinarian was 
did everything. Yeah. They were the surgeon, the cardiologist, the oncologist, the internist. I think there's probably a lot of reasons why the, our knowledge base ha, is exponentially growing. Technology is available. The things that we can diagnose and see with our ultrasounds or other diagnostic imaging modalities, even compared to 20 years ago, is, is expanded. Pet owners, pets are much more likely to be treated as true members of the family instead of, you know, a dog being left outside all the time. That mm-hmm. kind of um, evolution has all ki- kind of made veterinary specialty medicine in demand. And so there's a lot more accessibility or availability to specialty medicine than there was, you know, when I was growing up. I mean, I think my, we had a dog and he developed lymphoma and I don't think, I mean, my parents were not given the option to go see an oncologist. It was, I don't, cause I don't think there was, they would, we lived in Southern California. We would have had to drive up to UC Davis and there was no way my parents were going to be able to do that. So, so because of specialty care, pets are living longer. I mean, that's probably a component. I think that probably, again, being incorporated into the families, mm-hmm. they, uh, the, it's a multifactorial um, primary care, specialty care if needed. Uh, people are more interested and concerned about preventatives and you know doing whatever they can at home as well as at the doctor to ensure that their pets live as long as possible and live as good a quality of life. So I've heard that there is some correlation between grain-free diets and dilated cardiomyopathy. Would you like to touch on that at all? Sure. So it's interesting about Three to four years ago, uh, there started, people, cardiologists started discussing amongst themselves, like, we're seeing dilated cardiomyopathy in breeds that don't normally get it. And oh, the, the weird thing is, all these dogs are being fed a diet a boutique diet with sort of an exotic protein and mm. high legume content and they're grain free. So that led some groups uh, at to start investigating it a little bit further. We still don't have definitive answers and we it's such a probably a complex enough problem that we may not have definitive answers for some time. Mm-hmm. But certainly the FDA is involved. The FDA has last summer released a list of 16 diets that have been implicated in the vast majority of cases reported to the FDA. So there were over 500 cases of this nutritional cardiomyopathy or nutritional dilated cardiomyopathy reported to the FDA. And we have to keep in mind that for every case that's reported, there's probably many more that aren't reported because mm-hmm. the reporting port because owners don't know to report it to the FDA not every owner knows yeah. um, but essentially in the trenches so to speak what we started seeing as cardiologists were breeds so that dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs tends to be 
uh, along breed lines. So there are certain breeds that are highly predisposed, like Doberman Pinschers, Great Danes, Irish Wolfhounds. Um, usually they're large breed dogs. We started seeing breeds that rarely were diagnosed with DCM, like Golden Retrievers and mixed breed dogs. And a, in the past couple of years, I know at our practices, we've seen several very small breed dogs like Chihuahuas and Terriers, which I've been practicing cardiology exclusively since 2004, and I had never seen a Chihuahua with dilated cardiomyopathy. Mm. So, and and, and the, the common thread has been these diets. So what we don't know is, is it the lack of grain? Is it, because a lot of the grain-free, you know, quote-unquote grain-free diets, they replace carbohydrates or the grains as the carbohydrate with legumes, chickpeas, lentils, sometimes potatoes, sweet potatoes. And is there something in those ingredients that's leading to a malabsorption of an amino acid or a protein? We just don't know yet, but it is pretty devastating. And it's certainly we like to talk about the success stories. I've had a couple patients where they came to me and they were in congestive heart failure. They had been on these a diet like this we changed changed their diet started them on heart failure medications and within six months to a year their hearts improved dramatically i've had one patient where their heart went back almost completely to normal but i've also had a few patients who within a few weeks to months of diagnosis have died and i've had some that didn't fully recover they have to stay on medications but it's it's it is complex and we don't have all the answers, but it is under investigation for sure. At this point, what we're telling people is to try and stay away from diets that are not AFCO feeding trial tested. So it's like we just need to make sure that the diets being fed are in some way approved by a by the AFCO. So I'm curious about why did the grain-free diet trend come about? I mean, there's theories out there. I think people are looking to eat gluten-free and low-carb diets, and I think probably that's a huge driver of it. And as pets become more and more important parts of, members of the family, we want to do for them what we do for ourselves. And, you know, if you read the ingredient list on regular dog food some of the things maybe don't sound very appetizing but but those diets have actually been tested rigorously and shown to be completely fine for growth and thriving Um, you know I think self-diagnosed food allergy may be a a driver people think that the grains are causing allergies Um, usually in food allergies it's the protein source that's the problem not not grains Mm -hmm. but I, i i think it probably mostly just mirrors what's going on in sort of our own culture and our own eating habits Carbs are bad. Yeah, we like to project onto our pets. Yeah. Like how we put them in uh, little costumes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then is there anything you'd like to share about balancing your career with family? I know you mentioned you have, uh, you started a family. Yeah, I have two kids. 
I don't know that there is such a thing as work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, I think it's great that, you know, my kids get to see their mom as a relatively successful, hardworking veterinarian slash business person. Yeah. But also know that I am there for them if they, if and when they need me and um, that they are for sure a major priority. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not going to lie, it's hard sometimes to balance all of that stuff. Um, I am incredibly lucky to have a supportive spouse and he, I mean, he works in science so he understands uh, we can talk about things but also he gets sort of that my schedule is not like a regular person's schedule that if an emergency comes in you know obviously I may not be home at what time I thought I was going to get home and um and he's he's very involved and help helpful with the family as well so we all contribute yeah how old are your children I have a nine-year-old son and a an eleven-year-old daughter, and then a fifteen-year-old stepdaughter that that live with us. Wow. Okay. It's a full house. Yeah, yeah. Do any of them want to become veterinarians? There have been periods of time where that's what they said they wanted to be, um, but not. I don't have anybody currently wanting to become a vet. Yeah. That may change with the wind. Have they come to the clinic and seen you work? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And we have a dog, and they're all obsessed with the dog. So um, I, think they, I think they think it's cool that their mom is a vet. That was Dr. Katie Meyer discussing her journey as a veterinary cardiologist, from founding her own practice to merging with CVCA Cardiac Care for Pets. Just to reiterate... As a board-certified veterinary cardiologist, she is only one of about 300 in the world. She talked about the most common heart diseases she treats in cats and dogs, what it felt like to literally remove heartworms from one of her patients, and mentioned the importance of general practitioners and cardiologists co-managing patients. On the next episode of Veterinary Vitals, you'll hear from a veterinarian who knew at age 12 that that was what she wanted to be when she grew up. But it wasn't until undergrad that it became clear to her that she didn't look like most veterinarians. I ultimately went to Tuskegee University for undergrad. And so that also kind of was a jaded view of what veterinarians look like. But at that point, I think I started to become more aware that the profession was not as diverse. That was Dr. Nicole Bruno. She is chief of staff at Companion Animal Hospital in Spring, Texas, and is a veterinarian of color. Tune in to the next episode to hear her story of navigating the veterinary medicine profession as a minority, as well as her take on how the profession can address diversity. For now, please subscribe if you haven't yet, and I highly encourage you to write a review. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. Mm-hmm.